Well, welcome this morning. I particularly welcome our visitors to our celebration. And it has been a great celebration, and we are not done yet. Now, there is truth to be taught that will stir our hearts. There are songs to be sung. There are prayers to be prayed before we leave here today in celebration of our risen Lord Jesus Christ. And more than that, there are lives yet to be lived because the most significant part of the celebration doesn't end here today. It just begins. The celebration that we will carry out in our lives into that parking lot, into our vehicles, and down Middlebrook Pike to wherever God takes us to live resurrected lives. And that's why this morning I want to begin with this picture, this picture that happened last Tuesday in the flood-ravaged state of Missouri, to begin here and then to move us to an understanding of what we have in redemption. You can see in this picture this man right here, his name is Odell, and that's his pickup truck. And if you're from East Tennessee, you can't help but love a man named Odell with a pickup truck, right? Seventy-eight years old, and you can see the water is just starting to come across the road. He didn't see what was coming. His little Ford Ranger pickup was right here, and he is going down with it. And this FedEx truck stops, and a guy named Jay comes and lends a hand. And you can see right here that hand right there reaching out to grasp Odell and to pull him into safety. And I loved Odell's perspective. He said, man, if he hadn't come by, I would never live to see 80. So (laughs) what a guy, right? He's looking ahead. I share this picture with you because I want you to have kind of that heart with Odell that you're not just saved from death, you're saved to life. There's so much more. There is a sense in which if you have southern roots like I do, you, you, you kind of have the gospel surrounding you from little lines and storylines in country music to, to little uh, little tracks that you find in the truck stops and the, in the counters in the bathroom. You, you have this kind of picture that emphasizes that God has rescued you from death, which is absolutely true. We were headed to death. And Christ has rescued us, and the resurrection demonstrates the power of God to step in and bring us out of death and into life. But, but if this is your only story, if your only storyline is, He rescued me from death and hell, you will miss some very significant and some of the most essential and wonderful and beautiful parts because you are not simply rescued from hell in Christ. You are redeemed for life. You have been given redemption. And it's this morning what we want to understand is go past this, which is is great and true, and we don't leave it and forget it, but we build upon it that we've not just been rescued from death in hell, but we have been called to life in Christ. Because if we stay with just the little storyline of, well, we're not going to die until we, you know, when we die someday, God will take us home, which is all true and good and right. But if that's all we have, unless we're thinking about dying, we're not thinking much about the relevance of the resurrection. And it kind of comes down to, yay, I'm, I'm glad I'm not going to hell. That was a nice Easter service. Where are we going for lunch? That's not how I want you to leave here today. I want you to leave here with, yay, I'm not going to hell, but I have so much to live for and live with God right now. And this is just the beginning of the glory of my eternal life with him. And I'm going out in this parking lot to live with him today with the amazing grace and the extravagant freedom that has been given to me through my redemption in Jesus Christ. So let's let the Word of God instruct our hearts on that redemption. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. If you're new to the Bible, it's in the New Testament. It's Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. If you're landing kind of around there, if you're in Corinthians, you're almost there. 
Ephesians chapter 1, verse 3. And we get an immediate understanding that there's more to it than just being rescued from hell. Just right here with verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Something is at work here. Something much bigger than what we can see and know and understand and grasp in our material world is at work here. Verse 4, for he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Chose us before the foundation of the world, the creation of the world, with a vision that we would be holy and blameless in his sight. Me, you, those who belong to Christ. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. We have been chosen. This is an amazing grace before we were born, before we even knew. As Jesus said to his disciples, you didn't choose me. I chose you. We have been chosen in Christ and predestined to be adopted. We can say it this way. We've not just been saved from hell. We've not even been primarily saved from hell, although that's true. We have been saved to be his children. We have been chosen by the Father to be his children. Here's a way that we can say this. Go ahead to the next slide. He has chosen to be your father and to find great pleasure in sharing his life and family with you. It is not just that he rescued from the ravaging torrent of sin and death, although that is absolutely true, but you are rescued out of that, that you might enter into relationship with him. If you know your Bibles in John 17, when Jesus prayed, he prayed, father, I want them to be with us. I want them to know our love as I know your love. I want relationship. I am redeeming them for relationship. So, you are, if you are in Christ, you have been adopted into the family of God. You now belong in his life and his family. In case this doesn't mean as much to you like for us who are an adoptive family or if you don't have connections and understand adoption, let me just give you a portrait. Let me give you a picture of what this can look like. This is the Zinzer Fox family. And uh, you can't see real well because it's a little bit, a little bit shaded there. But back in here, that's the mom, Jean. You're looking over the dad's, J- David's shoulder. This is the little Lene. She's about to pray there, and she's just full of joy and of life. There's six children in the Zinzer Fox family. They live in the Denver area. All six of these children, ages 4 to 18, have been adopted into the family out of very painful, difficult situations. Each one of them was living in a hopeless, powerless, disconnected, on-their-own state. Here's how the mom describes the children. They've been through homelessness, having no food or running water, moving from place to place, drugs, neglect, guns, violence, abuse, not being fed, not being touched, not being held, not being loved. One of the little guys used to talk about being put into his crib with no lights because they had never had any electricity. Another recalled crawling across the carpet, scrounging for food. And around this banquet table they sit full of love and acceptance and joy and a bounty, not just of food, but of relationship. They have been called out of hopelessness and homelessness and nowhere to go as children into a family where they are embraced and loved and cared for and called their own by the Father. That is the redemption we've been called to. 
And Leslie, who's 15, has this quote. I just absolutely love this. It feels like we are all treasures. We got to be chosen. It feels like we're all treasures. We got to be chosen. This is what we've been called into. Chosen into life with the Father, belonging and being treasured. We've not just been pulled out of a ditch to be walking on streets of gold, although those things are true. What is more important for us to understand is that we have been given freely the grace of God. There is more to the story than what we know. And that's where I want us to go this morning. I want us to understand what the redemption means and what it means to be in the family so that you walk out this door and drive out of this parking lot living as a chosen child of God, the treasure that you have in Jesus Christ. So let's look back at Ephesians chapter 1 and we'll go back to verse 5 and begin reading there. He predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. I will never get over that phrase, that it is God's pleasure, it is his will that I be called his son. When we consider in a moment what it cost him through our Lord Jesus Christ, if you were here last week when our teaching pastor Greg spoke of the atonement, the substitutionary penal atonement, the the taking our place in suffering and death, and it was God's pleasure to do that on my behalf for his glory. It was his will. Verse 6. To the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. Amazing grace given to us freely in the one he loves. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and all understanding. In him we have redemption through his blood. We have been given redemption through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now the word redemption is a word that the Greeks use the word apolytrosis. And it literally means this. The beginning of the word means to be dissociated from or marked off from or taken away from. It literally means you were here and now you're over here. You have nothing to do with this. And the word latrosis comes from a word that is, is about ransoming, about paying the price. It's a legal uh, 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 commerce term for buying and paying and purchasing. The picture is you were here, you were in this place, and now you have been bought to this place. The most common use of this word, and Greg mentioned this on our Good Friday service, the most common use of the word redemption is to talk about slavery, talk about slaves. It is the purchase of one who was enslaved. It is the buying of their freedom. When we read the redemption through his blood, the scripture is saying this to you. You were here. You weren't just rescued so you go to heaven. You were here. You were enslaved. You could not but turn to yourself as your God. And you have been rescued now. And you have been ransomed. You have been redeemed. You have been purchased There were 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire, so when this was written, it was understood very well what slavery meant, what it cost, and what it would be to be freed. One commentator says this, This word means to buy back or to deliver one from a situation in which one is powerless to liberate themselves. Or the penalty is so costly, they could never have paid the ransom. That is our redemption, the cost 
that needed to be, must have been, had to be paid for our sins was the cost of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's no wonder that Paul uses the word lavish. That God has lavished on us the riches of God's grace. Here's how John wrote. John walked with Jesus, knew Jesus personally, saw Jesus' relationship with the Father. Here's what he wrote. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. And that is what we are. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are the child of the Father by his sovereign will and pleasure to belong to him. And you should feel as one who has been chosen and treasured. Not because of what you have done, but because of who he is. That is our redemption. That is the amazing grace of God. Now, there are two things I want to instruct you on before we continue to understand how that redemption leads to an extravagant freedom of life. There's two things I want to instruct you on. First of all, when you're brought into the family belonging to the father, you are brought in as a child not just to have a father but to have a family. So when you hear us talk about community groups and the way we break our church into smaller units so that you're not just sitting in a room with a bunch of people, but you're building relationships, you're becoming connected, you're building a smaller church family to which you belong. The reason that we're doing that is not to fill time or because that's what churches do or programs are important. We do that because all of us are brought into a family and not just a church service. So if you're new to fellowship or you're considering fellowship or God's stirring in your heart, we're calling you not just to be in the big service, but to find other relationships beyond this room where you experience life in the family of God. And the second thing I would instruct you on this is to understand what this does mean and what it does not mean that you've been lavished on by God the Father. This is going to be absolutely critical as you walk out your faith out of this parking lot into the world in which we live, that you understand what it means to be lavished upon and do not misunderstand and wrongly get the wrong idea about what fatherly love is. Let me show you a quote by, it doesn't matter who it's from, but it's a quote from a national, international kind of a teacher speaker. And this this is some of what he says, God cherishes and values you so much today. You are the apple of his eye, the center of his world. You are God's number one priority. And I want to help you with the truth of this and the part that's not. God cherishes you and values you so much today. He absolutely does. You are the apple of his eye. He he is proud of you. He enjoys you. If you are his child, if you are not in Christ, you are distant from him and you do not know him. There is no other way but Christ. But if you belong in Christ, you are loved dearly. He is delighted when you come to him. He is delighted to reach. He is delighted to pursue you. Do you remember the picture of the prodigal son? The son is still far off and the father runs. He is passionately loves you deeply for who you are. But you are not the center of his world, and you are not his number one priority. And this is really important. Have you ever been around a family where the child gets to be the center of the world and they are the number one priority? Have you ever been to that person's house and say, we're not going back there again? (laughs) Have you ever been to that person's house and say, I wished I had ten minutes with that four-year-old right now? (laughs) Have you ever thought, 
Lord, what is the, where is the 1-800 number for super nanny? I need to call her right now. If a child is the God of the family, the child becomes selfish, misunderstands what life is really about, and begins to think that they are God. You are not the center of God's world. God is the center of his world. If God makes you the center of his world, he is worshiping you and he is committing idolatry, which is the one thing he told you you cannot do. You do not want a God who worships you. You do not want a God who comes in to try to make your life work on your terms. You want a God who loves you so much that he will enter into the mess that you have made on your terms and draw you into life with him. You see, when we come to God as his children, we don't offer him our script and say, here's how we want things to go. We don't even offer him our script and say, you can edit parts of it, but most of it I want for me. When we come to God, we say, you are the author because you are the power and the glory and the riches of grace to me. You love me and have pursued me. I trust you to be God. So we cannot allow our limited focus, our limited idea, the, the, the kind of the selfish part of us is like, I just want God to be there for me. He's already demonstrated his desire to be there for you. And what he's calling on you is to meet him in that place and to be his child. Look at verses 9 and 10 of Ephesians 1. Verses 9 to 10. He made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure. Again, he was pleased. All this, we sang this morning about the suffering of Christ, the ransom of Christ, the pain of Christ, the debt he paid. This was the pleasure of God to do this, which he purposed in Christ, to be put in effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. There is such a greater story than you can imagine. Do not limit your redemptive life based on how you can get God to fit your script. Enjoy the goodness of a God who's called you into an eternal story, who's called you a treasure because you have the treasure of Christ in you, who has called you to his ultimate plan of fulfillment for his glory. The gift that God has given to you that even extends beyond your being saved from hell, the gift you have been given is to share with him his glory and his holiness and his blameless is your father, and he wants to make you like him. That's the amazing grace. In love, he predestined us. Before the foundation of the world, he chose us that we would become holy and blameless to share in his glory. Now, just to get a little bit of an idea of how big the picture is, let's go to, to Ephesians 1, verse 11. Let's look at verse 11 through 14 and read about this future redemption that's ahead for us. The redemption we have now, but where this whole thing is going, where the story culminates. Verse 11. In him we were also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be for the praise of his glory. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his 
glory. Do you see where this is headed? He has invited you, child of God, into his family to enjoy with him where he's taking the entire universe to share in his glory. And if you do not know Christ, you are completely distant, left out apart from the equation, which is what we call hell. And it doesn't just start when you die. It's like today. You're either with the Father or you're not with the Father. And if you're with the Father, this is where everything is headed. Out of his love and his pleasure and his joy for you. We are going to take the glory that we have and exchange it. Ultimately, it's going to be all of this we can see is stripped away and we were brought into the fullness of him. But between now and him, it's just little exchanges every day. Little exchanges of glory. One of my sons this last week uh, came to me and said, uh, can we get rid of the van? Which has been a thought that I've had for a long time, by the way. Um, it just it's, Driving the minivan is not like the highlight of my life, particularly since it has 140,000 miles on it now. All right. And so my son has a friend whose dad just got a luxury SUV. And my son has been telling me all about it all week. He said he'll say things like, Dad, don't you just love that new car smell? I hadn't had the heart to tell him, son, the best you can hope for is a certified pre-owned smell. All right, that's all we're going to get, all right? (laughs) But, but, you know, our van's eight years old, 140,000 miles. When I bought it, my kids were 10 and 5 and, 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 uh, 3. Math always takes me a while. 3. Okay, 10, 5, and 3. It's been through countless happy meals, all right? It's been through road trips and baseball teams and whole basketball teams bouncing up and down in it to the music on the radio. It's been on swim team trips and vacation. It, it, it has a smell, but it's not the new car smell, okay? <laughs> and when my son says, don't you think we ought to get rid of it? I'm like, yes, oh, I really want to. I just wished I could justify it as a good financial decision. And it recently went through some problems, and a part of me was like, I hope we can fix it. And a part of me is like, I hope this is it. I would love to exchange the glory of my minivan, which is so very little glory left, for the glory of a luxury SUV brand new with a new car smell. That, that continuum right there is not, it's not even close. This, this, this stuff that happened this week, you're like, golly, is, is it like Groundhog Day? Do I keep having the same problem over and over? This, this thing that happened last week when you did that, I said, I, oh, I said I'd never do that again. I, didn't, I said I'd never think that thought again. I said I'd never let that word slip out. I, I said I'd never think that way about that person again. All of that's going away. It's going away. And you're going to exchange it for the glory of God. That's what you've been bought for. You've, it's wonderful to be saved from hell, but it's so much more wonderful to be brought into God's glory and family to join Him on the journey forever. That's the love of God. That's the redemption. It's the cost that Christ prayed to take us out of slavery to ourselves. I would build such a different life for myself than what God builds, and God is exactly right in every step He takes. And here's the other thing we have to realize. There was a time, I've had a a couple of new cars, most of the time I've always bought new, but there was a time when this minivan was brand new. It had that new car smell. There were no Chicken McNugget stains on the carpet. There were no little rips in the seat. 
There were, there were no ab- marks of abuse around it. It was brand new, and it's done nothing since then but depreciate and decay. And what you must understand, I tell you on behalf of God the Father, that anything that you have at the center of your world that you're living for, including yourself, that has replaced the place of God is in the process of depreciating and decaying. It's why when I sit with people at the end of their lives and they look back, the scariest question is, was that it? Is that it? And the life lived for God, you look back and say, yeah, that's it, but that's only a taste of what's coming. And the life lived without God is, yeah, that was it. Depreciation and decay. That's what we have been saved out of into life with God. Ephesians 1.14 tells us it is for his glory and by his glory that we live. There's another thing that Ephesians tells us in verse 13. It says we were marked, we were sealed by the Holy Spirit. Here's what that means. That means that everything I just described to you is guaranteed, done, taken care of by the cross and the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. If you're here this morning and wonder why some of us get so emotional, when I look around the room and there are tears in the room, when I look around the room and people are singing as if they're trying to, trying to get their intestines through their throat, if they're raising their, they just cannot find a way to express what's inside of them, it's because they cannot believe this has been done and they know and they are secure that it is over. As Andrew's saying, it is finished. This word sealed was used in, in the, again, it's a commercial term, and it was used in the Greek culture to describe, in the Greek language, to describe ownership. For instance, if they cut down logs in one place and they put the logs on a river and they floated them down to where they were going to be cut, they would mark a seal on the log, the seal demonstrating who it belonged to. When they would have a document, a will, if you would, if you would put together a will of inheritance, the will would have up to six copies and everyone who had a copy had a seal around the copy, the same seal. When the person died, the seal was open and the will was read. And there was no other will. There's nothing else coming into the equation. This is the will that's guaranteed by the seal. That's the image we have here. This is a guaranteed inheritance. Even more so, the term seal was used to describe how a building that someone did not want anyone to enter but the owner. Only the owner entered the building. And so the building would be sealed and stamped with the owner's mark. And no one could get in the building except the owner. And if you consider that, then you ought to be having a great Easter because the Roman government sealed the tomb and put their mark on it of ownership and God broke the seal. Amen? God broke the seal. God says, you do not own him. I own all. And that is the mark he has sealed on you in the Holy Spirit. This is amazing grace, folks. This is amazing grace because he did this not because of who we are, but because of who he is. How do you know whether you have grace or not? How would you know going in the next week whether or not grace is really operating in your life? If you're a believer, how would you know that this grace is starting to really take hold? Or if you're not a believer, how would, how would you know that you're missing 
what God's called you to. I love what Matthew Henry says in this quote. Oh, let me go back to um, the Romans 8.31. I forgot to show that one. Romans 8.31, just 21, I skipped it. It says, The creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. I wanted to show you that verse because I wanted you to know that all of creation longs someday to participate in the glory that belongs to you already and is coming. Now let me show you Matthew Henry's quote about grace. Wherever there is true grace, there is a desire for more grace. When it's true grace, you don't have to prove to God that you're good enough anymore. When it's true grace, you don't have to write the script and demand that he goes by your script. When it's true grace and the circumstances come into your life that you do not want, you can pray through them and walk through them. And if he does not remove them, you can still experience his grace to be sufficient in your weakness and in your pain to be bringing you the glory of God. That is the grace that you have. And in the last part of this text, I want to show you what it looks like day to day. I want to show you how it is that you experience this because this amazing grace offers you an extravagant freedom. And we're going to sing about this grace and freedom. And I want to make sure you understand clearly what this redemption has bought you even now. I'm not going to teach these at length. I'm just going to mention them, read the text, and then explain just real quickly what each one meant. An increased knowledge of God a secure hope in his glory, a guaranteed wealth of his inheritance, and an absolute power of the resurrection in your life. You can read this. After we read it here, you ought to pray it this week and say, this is the life I was called to live. Let's read together. I'll put it up on the screen, or you can turn to your Bibles. We'll go to verse 17 of Ephesians 1. This is Paul's prayer based on this amazing grace. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, This glorious Father who's called you into His family may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. Paul says, out of this grace, I am praying by His grace, this glorious Father will help you know Him better. Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, His incomparably great power for us who believe. And then verse 19 and 20. That power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated Christ at the right hand in the heavenly realms. What have we been given? Well, let's look at it again. An increasing knowledge of God. A secure hope that this glory is ahead. He has secured it. He has sealed it. A guaranteed wealth of his inheritance. He will not, having not withheld his son from suffering, he will not withhold anything from us. And an absolute power of the resurrection. This is the life at work in you. Do you understand this? That in any battle, the army that does not fear wins. Do you realize that in any relationship, the person who does not fear leads? Do you realize that in any circumstance, the one who does not fear is the one who overcomes? And what each of these suggests to us, what these teach us, what they instruct us is, we have no need of fear. We have been set free to live our lives for the glory of God, which is the very purpose for which we were made. 
to build our families around the purposes and glory of God, to build our relationships at work around the purposes and glory of God, to deal with our financial wealth or lack thereof around the purposes and the glory of God, to make our decisions in our lives about what we think and how we live according to the purposes of God and the grace to forgive us and redeem us and grow us so that we increasingly look like him. This increased knowledge of God means that you will increasingly know him better to be your God and you will not be alone, which is your number one fear, that you will be left alone. And you won't be because you will know him better. That you will have a secure hope in his glory. This means that you do not have to manage the outcomes of your life. You have to make responsible choices. You have to be obedient within what he's called you to be. But you do not manage the outcomes. Those are his. And they are yet to be determined. But one thing you do know, because you're his child, everything that's coming will be for his glory and for the goodness of you sharing in his glory. This guaranteed wealth of his inheritance means that you do not have to fear that when you get to the end of your life, you will have to sit back and think, I probably wasn't good enough, or I hope I was good enough, because it's not about your being good enough. And this absolute power means that there is no reason to fear danger, there is no reason to fear doubt, there is no reason to fear defeat in the short term, and there is no reason to fear death. Because the power of the resurrection is the power that is guiding, shaping, and moving your life. It is no wonder that the most famous hymn of the church says this, Grace taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. Grace taught me that the only thing I could ever have to fear is God, which put me totally at ease because he paid the price for my redemption to share in his glory. The man who wrote that is this man, John Newton. When I first saw John Newton's photo, I thought, he has a great face for radio. <clears throat> but he would probably say the same thing if he could see me, right? I just, I didn't think, I, I knew his story and I thought, there's no way he looks like that. So I Googled John Newton's image. I can't tell you how many times trying to get a different picture and everyone looks just like this. Because this is not the man, it just, this is not what I envisioned, all right, when I started this thing. He was born in 1725 to a godly mother, July the 24th, 1725, to this godly woman who raised him up in the scriptures and in the love of God and taught him compassion and life. But his mother died and his dad, who was a seafaring, hard-living sailor, married a woman who had no care and no concern, not only for God, but also for John Newton. Basically, at six years old, he started living on his own. He wrote about his relationship with his father. He said this, I'm persuaded my dad loved me, but he seemed not willing that I should know it. I was with him in a state of fear and bondage. His sternness broke and overawed my spirit. And from this stern, fearful dad, John Newton learned to run and hide and write his own script, which by the time he was about 18 years old, being forced into the naval service, he wrote this, I was capable of anything. I had not the least fear of God before my eyes, nor so far as I remember the least sensibility of conscience. It's hard to believe it looking at that picture, but that when he was a young man, he was a worthless, angry, mad-at-the-world rebel who was dumped on the west coast of Africa by the other sailors 
wound up having to forage for food. He was starving so badly that slaves actually fed him. He escaped back onto his father's boat just before his father died, and he chose in order to make himself a living, the seafaring life as a slave ship captain. He made his living off of enslaving people. He understood what power was about. He understood what it meant to not care. He understood what it meant to be afraid. He understood what it meant to be the captain of your own ship, literally and figuratively. And this man was caught by the grace of God. And when he writes of it, he writes, I once was lost, but now I'm found. Once was blind, but now I see. Because the love and the grace, the amazing grace of the Lord Jesus Christ not only changed John Newton, not only brought him into an eternal relationship with Christ, but brought him to a place of extravagant, extravagant freedom. This man who once was an abuser, once lived himself below the line of the slave, once lived his own life on his terms and destroyed his life in the process, this man became a powerful force in the liberation of slaves throughout the whole of England. He was a mentor to William Wilberforce. If you watch the movie Amazing Grace, you will see the power of John Newton's life. He became a self-taught pastor and lived for 40 years teaching people the amazing grace of God and the extravagant freedom of making a difference in this life in Christ. Here's the grave marker he wrote for himself. John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves in Africa, was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, preserved, restored, and pardoned and appointed to preach the faith he had long labored to destroy near 16 years at Olney and Bucks and 27 years in this church. This man moved from spiritual enslavement in his heart and fear to the resurrection of the glory of the freedom of life with Christ. He experienced redemption in its full glory. And that redemption came from a man raised by an earthly father who taught him nothing but fear and bondage. But he was raised up by a heavenly father who taught him grace and freedom. And that is the power and the call of the resurrection. We stand with me as we sing together of this amazing grace and extravagant freedom that we have been given in Christ. Lord, we pray that as we sing this song, as we bring to you an offering of of who we are and an offering of our need for your grace and your freedom, we ask, Lord, that you would remind us that we've not just been rescued from hell, we have been restored, redeemed, to use John Newton's words, pardoned. And the faith and the relationship we all once sought to destroy, we now come to participate in. Lord, I pray that you would call us this morning to an increasing knowledge of who you are, the freedom of your glory, to the secure hope we have of our inheritance, to the guaranteed wealth that we need not prove anything. And Lord, I pray that we would know that the absolute power of the resurrection to redeem has not only redeemed us, but is now redeeming us to the praise of your glory. In Jesus' name.